Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that, that you are glorious. You are crowned in glory. And we look forward to that day when we will get to see you in all of your glory. Help us when days are hard, when days are long, to remember that 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 day is coming when we will fully see how glorious you truly are. Help us, Father. Give us perseverance as we look forward to that day. Remind us that you are holy, 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 that you are glorious, full of light, full of grace and truth. We love you. We invite you into our time today. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you, church. It's good to be with you all today. My name is Christian Root. I'm the associate pastor, and I'm going to be sharing this morning, and I'm thankful for that. We especially want to welcome those of you who are here for the first time. And so if this is your first time here at the Vineyard, thank you so much for coming. On on your way out, you're going to find a, a welcome packet by the back doors, and so feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Thank you again for coming, and thank you also to those of you who are joining us right now via Facebook, for those of you who are joining us out in the parking lot. We really, really appreciate you joining in as well. All right, well, as I announced last week, we're we're unfortunately not going to be having our 5K race this year for obvious reasons, and yet we still want to contribute money to the digging of freshwater wells in India. And so on the first three weeks of September, we're going to be selling brand new vineyard t-shirts out in the parking lot under the tents. And so for $10, you can get yourself a brand new vineyard t-shirt, and all of the proceeds are going to go to digging freshwater wells in India. So please bring some money those first three weeks. And then on Sunday, the 27th, or Saturday the 26th, that weekend, one of those two days, we want you to wear your t-shirt and tell others about the vineyard and certainly tell others about Charity Water. They're an amazing organization that we partner with that is building freshwater wells all over the world. And and so make sure you wear your t-shirt that weekend as well. All right, well, if you have a personal need of any kind, please, please, uh, yeah, I I had to say this last time, not of any kind, okay? I I mean, like, if you need toilet paper, go out and get you some at the Kroger, all right? I'm not not helping you out there. There's plenty, I checked. But but if you have a, a, a pertinent need or something that I could help you with, please email me. My email is christian at gcvineyard.org. I'd love to help you out. Also, you can email the church. Uh, You can email info at gcvineyard.org or call our church office if you have any prayer requests or have any praise reports that you would like us to know about. And then lastly, we're we're not going to be taking up a physical offering again this week, but if you have your tithes and offerings, feel free to drop those off in the baskets on your way out. You can also give online at gcvineyard.org and you can mail in your tithe and offering as well. Thank you guys again. Thank you for your generosity. We really, really do appreciate it. All right, well, let's pray for the rest of our time together, and then I'll, I'll jump into today's message. So would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, come. We are just so reliant on you. I am so reliant on you. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're, you're present in our worship and our praises, and we just ask for more of you, more of your influence, more of your power, more of your spirit. What can we do apart from the Lord? What can I do apart from the Lord? 
And so we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you bring glory to our Savior Jesus? Would you come and would you give us insight to your word? Would you come and bring fresh encouragement today, fresh conviction where needed, fresh understanding? Prepare our hearts now for what you want to share with us. Get me out of the way, Father, and speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, last week we started a new series that we're calling Lessons from the Wilderness. And I I shared that throughout the Bible, the, the people of God repeatedly found themselves in the desert, in the wilderness. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul. And as we saw last week, the entire Israelite community all spent some time in the wilderness at one point or another. When when we examine the Bible, it becomes clear that all of us, all of us, every single one of us in this room are going to be asked to take a few laps in the wilderness over the course of our lives. The the wilderness journey, it's just, it's inevitable. Thought I'd I'd start off with a, a cheery note this morning. It's a gift of mine. And as I said last week, I'm not suggesting that all of us are going to end up in the the literal wilderness where we're sleeping with a rock for a pillow or trudging through the hot sand during the day, but all of us throughout the course of our lives, we're going to walk through harder seasons, seasons in which we feel isolated from others, seasons in which we feel uncertain of our future or or feel like, frankly, our our prayers are, are just being left unanswered. So over this course of this series, we're going to be looking at some of the wilderness experiences of men and women found throughout the Bible, hoping to learn from their stories, from their lessons, from their successes and failures, that we might follow Jesus well in the midst of our own wilderness journeys. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 24. So if you have your Bible with you, you have your phone with you, why don't you turn with me now, 1 Samuel 24. 24. As you turn there, I'm, I'm going to catch, catch us up on the wider context of what we're jumping into. We first meet David in 1 Samuel 16 when he is a young boy, and he is secretly anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. Not long after, David is hired by King Saul to be a musician in his courts. David soon makes a name for himself when he defeats Goliath, the giant Philistine, in battle, by far every young boy's favorite biblical story. If my son could just read David and Goliath every night, Goliath every night, he'd be happy. But I digress. So David, he, he defeats Goliath, and, and then he begins to lead Saul's army. And Saul becomes murderously jealous of David. And twice, King Saul tries to take David's life. And while Saul was unsuccessful both times, David, he he understands that his chances aren't aren't very good if he continues to hang around. And so David, eventually, he flees for the wilderness. And so that's where we're at in the story. David has rounded up around 600 men who are accompanying him, and he and his men are on the run from King Saul. And so let's read 1 Samuel 24 together. This is what we read. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags 
of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Let's stop there for just a moment. You know, one question that you might be asking at this point is this. How were David and all of his men, remember he had about 600 men with him, able to hide from King Saul in the cave and not be heard? Well, these caves in, in Engedi, they, they weren't just any cave. They weren't just small caves. These caves were large enough to serve as sheep pens. And so they would have gone a, a long ways back. They would have been big enough to hide most, if not all, of King Saul's, or, or King David's men, rather. Continuing on in verse 4, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand upon him, for he is the, Lord's, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Another quick interlude. This is the last one. Why did David feel remorse after cutting away Saul's robe? Have you ever thought of that when you've read this passage before? Well, David felt remorse not for what he had done, but rather for whom it was done against. As one commentator put it, a seemingly trivial action would be taken very seriously if it were done against the President of the United States or against the the Queen of England. The, the fact was, Saul was the king. And David regretted taking any action of ill will against the king. Let's read verse 8 now to the end. Here we go. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father looked at this piece of your see my father look at this piece of your robe in my hand I, I cut off the corner of your robe but I did not kill you See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion I have not wronged you but you are hunting me down to take my life May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me but my hand will not touch you As the old saying goes from evil doers come evil deeds so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my hand and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Almost there, guys. You can do it. You're doing great. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way that you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name 
from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right. So here's the quick recap of of what just happened in case you got lost. David and his men are hiding in the back of a cave from King Saul. Saul just happens to approach that very cave to use the bathroom. He's by himself without any guards because understandably he, he wants some privacy. And while King Saul is using the bathroom, can't make this up, it's in the Bible, he's using the bathroom, David sneaks up behind him debating whether or not he's going to kill King Saul. Instead of killing him, David picks up the robe that Saul has presumably sat down on the ground, and David, he cuts off a corner of the robe. Immediately after cutting Saul's robe, David feels remorse, and then he rebukes his own men who who desperately wanted to kill King Saul in that moment. And when Saul leaves the, the cave, David confronts him and lets Saul know that he has spared his life. That's today's story. That's 1 Samuel 24. Now, now there's one big takeaway that I, I want us to take away from today's passage. Last week, I gave you two, two points. This week, I'm shaving it down even more. Just one point. So we should be out of here in five minutes. Easy peasy. Here we go. Here, here's, here's the only point for today. When we are in the wilderness... We need to be aware of the impulse to justify our sin. To justify, to excuse away our sin. Here's what David knew. He knew that it was forbidden to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And King Saul was the Lord's anointed king. Yes, God had already promised that the kingdom would be taken from Saul. That's true. Yes, Saul was not a godly king, but these facts did not matter. Saul was the Lord's anointed, and therefore the Lord alone had the right to harm King Saul. But that wasn't the way that David's boys saw it. That wasn't the way that his friends and and the men he had gathered around him saw it at all. You can practically hear them singing in the back of the cave. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I mean, they are overjoyed because here, here the Lord has brought their enemy, the, the man who is pursuing them, trying to kill them, brought them into their very lap in the most vulnerable of positions. He's using the bathroom. They even quote a prophetic word back to David in verse 4. This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David's men, they assumed that that God had orchestrated this comical rendezvous as a means of fulfilling that prophetic word. It all made sense. Justice was finally going to be served. And yet, despite the pleading of his men, David, he refused to lay a hand on Saul, the Lord's anointed. In verse 7, we're we're told, in fact, that David sharply rebuked his men. And the word that we translate is is rebuke in the Greek. It, It means to tear apart. David tore into his men, as it were, most likely with threats of violence, should they harm King Saul. But let's be honest, guys. This was not an easy decision for David to make, was it? For as David later says on, he had done nothing wrong. He had made no attempt to steal King Saul's throne. 
And yet, King Saul had recruited 3,000 of his most able men to track David down like a dog and kill him. Do you think that a little bit of resentment might have been built up in David at this time? Do you think that there would have been some anger, some desire within King David, or, or rather some desire in David, he's not the king yet, to end things right there? To just take matters into his own hands. Boom. Saul is dead. Of course there was. Of course. This, this temptation it was just, just swirling within his heart. And when you are in the wilderness, church, when life is hard, the temptation to justify your sin, it will always be present. will always be present. You, you know, marital affairs typically, not always, but they typically occur when a marriage has been struggling for some time. They often occur because communication is broken down, when a, a good deal of warmth has been lost, and when a, a distance between a, a spouse and their, their other spouses is set in, when there's when there's struggles in the marriage. And it's in this state or condition, when the marriage is languishing, when it's dry, that we're tempted to think, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't the man that I, I married 13 years ago. This isn't the woman that I dated and fell in love with. I, I deserve to be with someone who makes me happy. I deserve to be with someone who appreciates me. I deserve to feel wanted. I, I deserve something better. I, I deserve, in other words, this sinful affair. Or, or perhaps you're single. You're single and you've tried to do everything right. You've made a commitment to only date followers of Jesus. You've made a commitment not to be physically intimate with anyone before your marriage. And yet, you're still single and you have no prospects in sight. Why shouldn't you indulge in pornography? Why should you alone be forced to repress your desires? Or you go to a job every day that you hate. You just hate it. Your boss is a tyrant. Well, why shouldn't you spend a third of your shift on Facebook or playing games on your phone? Why shouldn't you do the least amount of work possible that you can get away with without getting fired? Listen, when you are in the wilderness, when life is hard, when you're slogging through each day, the enemy, he, he will never grow tired of giving you reasons to justify your sin. Do you know this? Do, do you see this in your own life? Do you see this playing out in your life right now? Have you noticed since the start of the pandemic that you've begun to in, engage in practices that you would have never found acceptable before? Or, or that you've maintained a, a cynicism or a, a critical spirit that you would have never been able to justify in the past? Perhaps, even today, you might say, you know, Jesus, you know that this has been such a rough stretch for me. You know that I feel isolated. You know that I'm just struggling. But I no longer want to use this wilderness season as an excuse to justify my sin. And so I'm turning around. I'm repenting of my sin. And I'm refusing to live a life of self-pity. Anymore, I'm refusing to justify my sin any longer. J.C. Ryle is the famous 
19th century Anglican bishop, and he said this. He said, what you are in the day of trial, that you are and nothing more. What you are in the day of trial, that you are and nothing more. In other words, Ryle was saying that if you want the most accurate picture of who you really are, don't look at your behavior or your attitude when you've had a whole day of fishing to yourself. Don't look at your behavior when you're surrounded by good friends and good food and you're just taking it easy. Pay attention to yourself when you're in the middle of a storm. When you're tired, when you've been mistreated, when nothing is going as planned in your life. Most of us, you know, when we're in the the wilderness, we want to pick up a, a shovel and try to dig ourselves up out of our predicament. But what we really need to do when we're in the wilderness, what we really need to pick up in the wilderness is a mirror. It's a mirror. We need to see and recognize ourselves as we truly are for what we are in the day of trial. That you are and nothing else. Friends, it is in the wilderness when we're sick, when we're struggling financially, when we've been wronged by an ex-spouse, by a parent, by a friend, that our real heart is truly exposed. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 says this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The Lord understands that to accurately assess our hearts, he has to examine our hearts in the wilderness. When we're tired, when we're bruised, when we feel distant from our God. And what is this test of our hearts? What is the Lord looking for? He's looking for this. Will we continue to obey him? Will we continue to follow him? Continue to serve and forgive and love those around us even when the well is dried up, even when we're in the wilderness. The wilderness, it brings a test for each one of us. Do you know this? And it's a test that that David passed. You know, if you were to ask most people, where did David display the the most amount of faith in his life? Where was his faith most evident? I I think most people would point to his tangle with Goliath, don't you think? But I I think I would start right here in, in 1 Samuel 24, when he let Saul, his pursuer, the man who was trying to kill him, the man who had 3,000 other young men at his side, the day that David let this man live. David was saying in this moment, I'd rather live a life in the wilderness than sin against my God. That's what he was saying. I'd rather consign myself to a life of deprivation and hiding than disobey my Lord. Friend, this has to be the mindset that we take when we find ourselves in the wilderness. We have to be people who say, Father, no matter what the wilderness brings, And no matter what advice I get from everyone surrounding me, please help me not to sin against you. Even if I alone am doing what is right, give me the strength to maintain my integrity. That has to be the mindset. That has to be the thought process. Even if my whole family speaks poorly of my ex-spouse, I will not criticize him or her in front of others, and I will definitely not criticize them in front of our children. Even if everyone else at work bemoans and complains about the lack of hours, 
I will not spend my shift complaining. I will not speak poorly of the upper management like everyone else. Even if I detest my living situation and just can't wait to get a new apartment, can't wait, quite frankly, to get a new roommate, I will not fail to show kindness to my roommates. And I will not fail to do even their dishes if the dishes in the sink are piling up. Friends, may we, by God's grace, pass our wilderness test like David did. May we make a commitment not to justify, not to excuse away, not to explain away our sin. There's a, a quote that I, I just can't get over. And just to warn you, it's not a feel-good quote. It's not a quote that produces a lot of warm fuzzies. But th- this is the quote. D.A. Carson said this. He said, God is more interested in our holiness than in our comfort. He's more interested in your holiness than in your comfort. And doesn't a passage like today's, doesn't a text like today's prove this to be true? If God wanted to get David out of the wilderness, he could have done it with a snap of the fingers. Couldn't he have? I mean, one chicken bone down the wrong pipe while Saul is eating, and Saul would have been dead. That is nothing to God, right? And yet here is David continuing to book Airbnb rentals in different caves every night, living in the wilderness. Why? Why? Because God cares more about our holiness than he cares about our comfort. God was more interested in shaping David into a man who would become a good king than he was interested in giving giving David three square meals and a nice shower. Friends, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, our natural impulse is to question God's love, isn't it? Question his concern for us because we don't understand that our our father's concerns are different than our own. Has your father brought you into the wilderness because he doesn't care about you? Of course not. Throughout scripture, we, we see these loving affirmations from the father. He is deeply committed to us. His priorities are simply different than yours. You spend your days daydreaming about your deliverance while his mind is fixated on your holiness. That's what he's thinking about, about your holiness, about you growing into a Christ-like man, a Christ-like woman. And if you're still not fully persuaded, we can head to the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament epistles or letters, you'll find that Paul prays for his friends all the time. Throughout the New Testament, Paul is constantly praying for his friends. But here's what I find utterly fascinating. In all of Paul's prayers for others, he never prays for their circumstances. It's interesting. He never prays for their deliverance from the wilderness. Instead, he prays for their integrity. He prays that they would not fall into sin. He prays for what they really need, which is not a change in circumstances, but a change in heart. And so how would the apostle pray for you? If he were alive today, he'd probably pray something like this. Father, in the midst of my brother's illness or in the midst of my sister's loneliness, in the midst of this financial trouble or bodily pain, in the midst of these sleep issues or marriage problems or struggles with their children, would you give my brother, my sister faith? Would you give them perseverance? Would you give them a deeper understanding of your love, Father? More of your Holy Spirit, more of your wisdom, more of your perseverance. And would you help them, Father, not to sin in the wilderness? 
As we get ready to close, let's come back to the passage at hand one more time. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. What would have happened had David killed King Saul? What would have happened? Would David have inherited the kingdom? I I, I think it rather unlikely that that would have happened. David would have thrown away everything had he murdered Saul in the cave. He would never have become king, never have helped with the preparation of God's temple, which is a pretty big deal. And most importantly, the, the, the savior of this world would not have descended from his line. Matt Smethurst said this. I love this quote. He said, sin always looks better through the windshield than through the rearview mirror. Doesn't it? Haven't you seen this in your own life? As you look back over the past several months and examine ways in which you've sinned, compromises which you've made, sinful attitudes that you've held, gossip that you've shared, have these things made, made your wilderness journey any easier? Was any of it worth it? Sin always looks better through the windshield before you've given in than through the rearview mirror. Here's my final thought. Why do we maintain integrity in the wilderness? Why, why do we, like David, refuse to justify our sin? Here's the main reason. Because a thousand years after this event, roughly, one of David's descendants, Jesus of Nazareth, sweat drops of blood in a garden as he prayed, understanding that he was about to embark upon the most painful wilderness journey of all time. He was about to receive the cup of God's wrath, receiving the punishment that you and I justly deserve. And and our Savior, He willingly embraced this wilderness journey. He he allowed a, a crown of thorns to be shoved down His temple. He allowed nails to be driven into His wrists, into His legs all so that you and I might be pardoned, so that you and I might be declared righteous before a holy God. And so friends, as you continue this wilderness journey, I I know that some of you are there right now. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us remember what he went through for our sake. And let us refuse to live a life of self-pity, just wallowing in our own regrets and our own sense of entitlement. Let us refuse to go there. And let us refuse to justify our own sin, to explain it away. Let us look to Jesus and be reminded that because he died for us, this life will be the only wilderness that, that his followers ever experience. Let us look to Jesus. Let us us run from our sin. Let us pass the test. And let us bring him glory and honor with our lives. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand, church? We're going to worship together.